All right, Mark 9, 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought to you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. Let's pray that God will um, yeah, speak to us now through his word. Father, we thank you so much that we can take this time out, time out in the service and in the week, and in our lives to, to come to your word. Lord, your word is alive and active. Lord, it penetrates into our lives and our hearts. So Lord, please just give us in your spirit an honest estimation of who we actually are. Lord, a humility to receive what you have for us. And Lord, we pray that your word, Lord, that it might uh, in our life um, bring, bring uh, fruit. Lord, that it might bring growth into Christ-likeness. And Lord, we confidently ask that, knowing that that's what your intent is. In Jesus' name, amen. When in life do you go looking for the expert, the, someone that just knows so much about the, the topic that, that um, you know, you, you call them in, like when you get your grandkids to come and show you how to use your smartphone or your smart TV? Or maybe the tradie that comes in to fix up the DIY project that's kind of been half done and not quite right for, you know, a couple of months in the back corner of your house. Or the person in your family who's the really good cook who can come in and just, you know, raid the spice cupboard or find the right ingredients to, to add it to whatever you're doing there and, and get the flavour right. When do you go looking for the expert? At first glance, this kind of seems like a story like that, doesn't it? Jesus comes back along, finds his disciples, finds the teacher of this law, finds his, 
this dad and this boy who's still got this demon in him, and it's like, is, it, is that all this story is? Is it just Jesus, the expert, rolling in and doing what only Jesus can do? Well, there's more to it than that. Last time that I was up here preaching, it was just that part in Mark chapter 8 where the disciples finally declare that Jesus is the Messiah. And Mark is, is trying to paint that picture, trying to reveal Jesus' identity. Chapters 1 to 8 of Mark paint that picture that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they declare it. Right after this, and there's, there's one passage between what we looked at then and what we're looking at today, where Jesus is taken up the mountain, and it's known as the transfiguration, and he's transformed in front of Peter, James, and John. And he stands there with Elijah and Moses, and it's, and it's again a declaration of, of him being the Messiah. In fact, right then, God speaks, and he says, This is my son, whom I'm well pleased with. Listen to him. So, at that point... Jesus has been affirmed as really being the Messiah. And at this point is when Jesus, Peter, James and John come along to, like I said, find the remaining disciples. They're actually there in an argument with the teachers of the Lord. Did you pick that up? Meanwhile, there's the man with a demon-possessed son who's now just completely confused and the disciples are confused too because they tried to drive the demon out, but they can't. And they're actually off arguing And the man is actually in a very helpless situation. Look, before we dive into the rest of it, I just have thrown in there, what's up with demons? Like, we're just going to have a little conversation because this is actually the fourth out of four times that Mark tells us about someone with a demon possession and we haven't looked at any of them yet. And just in case you've never really thought about that or or you've kind of got questions about that, I I want to speak to that for a moment. So it's the fourth out of four times. This is the last time that Mark mentions anything about demon possession. Back in, um, back in 2019, you'll find on the podcasts, John Gill preached on one of these passages where the demons are driven into the herd of pigs. Um, it's podcast 246, if you want to write that down. And his teaching on it was really helpful. So if what I say now doesn't suffice, go hunting for that. Look, a basic definition of a demon from Mark's gospel or from the Bible is is this. Come up on the screen. An evil spirit that has the ability to inhabit, that is to possess a human being and influence him or her to carry out its will. Demons were rebel angels originally created by God and they are always limited by God. Jesus and his followers cast out many demons demonstrating the coming of the kingdom of God and Jesus' superiority. And all demons will one day be destroyed along with Satan. And you see that clearly in Matthew 25, 41 and Revelation 20, verse 10. Now, talking about evil spirits and, and witchcraft type of stuff when it's come up at youth group, because we're looking through Mark at youth group as well, just listening to the teenagers talk about it and, and, and that kind of like that witchcraft side of it, it's there, but it's not particularly pre- prevalent. So in our culture, you, you will cross paths with people that talk about this kind of stuff, have some kind of 
experience of it. If you just surveyed the room now, we would find that there would be some of us here that have some kind of testimony about it. But it's not all that prevalent. And, and so when it comes to understanding it, and we listen to that definition there, that idea of possession, it's normally in one of two ways. The first would be that someone might invite a, some kind of evil spirit for the sake of gaining some kind of power from it, like a clairvoyant or someone like that. But more often what you see in the gospel accounts is, is the second idea of possession, that someone would find themselves possessed. That is, they're afflicted with this possession of a demon. Now, I believe there is a greater prevalence of it in Jesus' time. There's a, there's a spike in it. Even if you just survey the Bible where you see demon possession, it's, it's very heavily concentrated to the time of Jesus. And there's a good reason for that because ultimately it speaks to the, his nature and to his mission. See, I don't know whether you've thought about this much before, but the goal of Satan, of, of the devil and of his demons, is to destroy faith, to destroy faith in people. Now, it's not the only thing that destroys faith. Our own sinfulness will do that, won't it? We're capable of, of, us, of in, our own, in our own sinful desires, undermining our faith. Likewise, the world, worldliness, will draw us away from faith. So demonic activity or evil spirits or things like that is only one of the factors. And so sometimes our own sinfulness and just where our society is at can account, I think, for a lack of demonic activity in in a society or in a community or things like that. So why is it not so prevalent today? Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Maybe we just don't know that much about it or hear much um, that much about it. I remember a few experiences of my own when I was an earlier Christian, not where... I um, had any kind of, you know, testimony of demonic influence on me, but where I feel like I had some strong senses, senses of it. And that's the whole idea, that it can attack our faith. Now, what is really important from these verses is that often what's described as den- demonic activity might look to us like some kind of illness. You look at what's happening for this boy there and is he having like an epileptic fit or something like that. Sometimes when people talk about voices in our head, we understand uh, mental illness and things like that. So it's really important that we understand that people that do have medical conditions or, or um, mental illnesses or things like that, that doesn't mean that they've got any kind of demonic activity going on in their life. That would be a very um, you know, foolish thing to, to think and actually really awful thing to, to, to say of someone. Mental illness is not in and of itself demonic. But it is important to recognise that particularly what the gospel shows is it can present in those kind of ways. The bottom line of it is that it's evil and it causes great suffering. Just, just survey these couple of verses from today's reading. Look at verse 18. For this boy, whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. In verse 20, the spirit immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Verse 22, it has often thrown him to fire or water to kill him. And verse 26, when Jesus drives it out, 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said that he's dead. Oh, sorry, I missed that bit. He convulsed him violently and came out. It's evil, isn't it? It's awful. And it causes great suffering. So I'm hopeful in just that explanation that I haven't explained it away and just dismissed it because it's there, nor overplayed it. Okay? What's recorded here, though, we need to recognise is horrific. It's horrific. What an awful thing. And when we scratch away at how evil this really is, it's self-evident that this isn't just bad, but this is scary. This, is, this is, should drive us to some level of fear. Except the Lord Jesus is in here, isn't it? And that's where we get to. It leads us to ask some big questions of actually what's happening here. The first question is, where are the disciples in this story? Just think about this. I've already said it. When Jesus encounters them, they're in an argument, in an argument with the teachers of the law. That's a silly place to be, isn't it? Verse 18 reveals that they tried to drive out the demon, but they couldn't. Now, What does that mean? Why couldn't they drive it out? I mean, Jesus had actually sent them out driving out demons in his name before. Was this some kind of super demon, some kind of more hardcore demon that needs special Jesus powers to get it out? I mean, that's kind of a silly thought, isn't it? But none of the disciples can drive out a demon. Only Jesus can. And that was actually true of any time that they did it when Jesus sent them out to do it. For them to do it, it would never really be them doing it, but them doing it in Jesus' name, yeah? And as they've been out before doing this, it's only in his power that they've done it. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 and and Mark chapter 6, verse 13 tell us that. He gave them authority, his authority. It was him doing it. What's verse 13 say? They drove out many demons and anointed many sick. They did it, but they did it in his power. And so it seems that the disciples are continuing on in that hardness of heart that they're wrestling with as Mark explains to us how they went on following Jesus. They're continuing to display it here. See, because the punchline in, in this, um, this whole encounter comes in verse 28 and 29, when, when they've all gone away. Listen to it. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out, Jesus? And he replied, this type can only come out by prayer. It's a bit of a cryptic kind of answer from Jesus, isn't it? Now, we will talk, about more, uh, we'll talk more about prayer soon, but what does, this, that, does that mean exactly? Did they fail to pray? Did they not pray about this? It makes you think, who else had they been relying on to drive the demon out? Was it themselves? Just think. They've just found out who Jesus is. We know that he's the Messiah now. We know that we're working for the actual Messiah. Jesus himself has said it to us. Their self-confidence here is at an all-time high. Just like when Peter heard that that Jesus had to go die, his self-confidence was at an all-time high, wasn't he? Because he went and rebuked Jesus. No, Jesus, you'll never go. We'll never let that happen. 
all the while, what's going on? There's a desperate father with a son who's being thrown around, who's suffering physically under the possession of a demon. (laughs) Their hearts are hard. It leads us to the second big question. What about the boy and his dad? Now, presumably, heaps of others have come to Jesus and found deliverance, just like this guy did. But, but he's come and encountered these disciples, and, he, and he's left with doubt. As Jesus talks with him, he uncovers that he, it's been a lifetime of suffering for his boy and also for the whole boy's family. Just listen to the conversation that he and the father had, Jesus and the father has in verse 22 and 23. From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus' response is pretty cutting, if you can. But it also speaks to how disillusioned this father is. Now Jesus is pretty firm in that response, if I can. Like he's saying, do you, really, do you doubt that I can? Why did you bring him here? But, but also hear, hear a tone in it from Jesus of this. Like Jesus is saying, you're about to see just how much I can, buddy. So listen to the exchange again, and I'll start at 23 and go to 24. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but I'm so weak, he's saying. Help me, Lord, help me. Isn't that a relieving and relatable thing to hear the father say that? The father in that statement reveals so much of what it is to come to Jesus in faith, in repentance and faith even. He does believe, but he's also up front that he is doubting and he's trying not to hide that. See, his faith is evident, evident in the fact that he's brought his son along to Jesus and he's persisting with Jesus to ask him. But his doubt is there and he's really honest about it. Now consider Jesus. He drives out the demon. He just does it like that. And yet, in the process, the boy appears to have died. They're all looking around. He looks like he's laying there dead. And whether he really was dead, like clinically dead, like take his pulse, check his signs and he's dead, or whether he wasn't, actually it only appeared that way, pay attention to what Jesus does. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Whether he was dead or whether he was just, you know, half knocked unconscious by the whole thing, when he stood up, he was a boy again with no demon possession. He was raised to a brand new life. Jesus is compassionate on him and undeniably gracious with a desperate father. 
The dad's faith is honest, real, and hopefully relatable. And I find it hugely encouraging, and I hope you find it that way too. I find it so encouraging that to be at the mercy of Jesus and be able to be so raw and upfront that you doubt and that you don't want to is hugely encouraging. I know that I'm there often. But it's not the Father and his faith that is the hero in this story, is it? Jesus is the one with the remarkable power. Jesus is the one with the compassionate grace. He is where it's at. See, our reflection and time in Mark's gospel has been thinking in light of who Jesus is and what it means that he is the Messiah and how on earth do we come and follow him. Let's think about that. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a minute. To be slow, so slow at working it all out. To, to be kind of trying to make sense of, of having left everything and tripping around with this guy now. And to having just discovered that he's the Messiah and then to hear all this talk of crucifixion. This bloody crucifixion that's awaiting in Jerusalem. We have to understand that they're giving this account at some level, as a reflection of their own wrestle of faith and doubt and following. They'd got a big thing wrong here. Look back at verse 17 with me. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I bought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And verse 19, You unbelieving generation, says Jesus. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. See, they had neither recognised, this is the disciples still, that the boy was being brought to Jesus and not to them, nor that he needed to go to Jesus and not to them. They thought that they were going to deliver him. Now, on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, as they are apostles, as they're heralds of the gospel, They go out preaching the good news that Jesus saves. But when they go out on the other side of the cross, they don't make this mistake. They don't make the mistake that thinking they're going to go out and save people. And so we shouldn't make that mistake either. To make the mistake when you think that you're going to go out and save people in and of your own strength. When we do make that mistake, we've got to remember God's forgiveness and seek it for ourselves. This shows us so clearly that Jesus is a powerful enough saviour. His power is sufficient. that We don't need to do any of the saving for him. In his grace, he uses us. But he is the saviour from first to last. Really, verses... 28 and 29, reveal that they had failed to pray. This kind can only come out by prayer. There's a silence there, isn't there? None of the bold disciples at that point jumped up and said, but we did pray, Jesus. Why didn't it work? Telling, isn't it? Just remember that, that prayer 
prayer for you and I is where you and I express our dependence on God, that we are dependent on him. Not one of us, none of us pray to conjure up God's power. Prayer, prayer doesn't work like that at all. It, it's, it's from a point of humility, a, a point of weakness, admitting our weakness and coming to the powerful one dependently. But it's never that sterile, is it? It's never that sterile. Because we pray to our Father as his children. We approach him as the one that has loved us, dearly loved us, has brought us in. Do you pray? I mean, I hope you do. I'm sure you do sometimes. I, I hope that you have a rich prayer life. But, but it forces us to ask this question. Do we pray? However we answer that actually reveals something of our own self-reliance. A self-reliance over and atop our dependence and our faith in God. When it comes to, to Jesus being the saviour and the lost people that we, that we live in community with, do you pray for them? Do you pray for them fervently? Do you pray without giving up? And when you do lose heart, do you pray that you would find passion for them again? Confronting questions, but we need to, we're confronted with it from God's word. So that is to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. Let's put ourselves in the Father's shoes one last time. Faith is an easy idea. Trust in Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. But consider this reality. Now, I've got a quote here from a guy called G.K. Chesterton, one of the famous dead guys of recent history, and he says it like this. There's something in a man which is always apparently on the eve of disappearing but never disappears, an assurance which is always apparently saying farewell and yet Illimitable, I can't say that word, lingers a string which is always stretched to snapping, yet never snaps. What he's describing there is the normality of fluctuating in our faith. That's quite normal, it's relatable. But also, as we go on in our life, just because it's relatable and just because it's the normative experience doesn't mean that we should just settle with a faith that is constantly ebbing and flowing. Knowing, you know, we can be confident that it doesn't break when it's originating from God himself. But we want to see that it grows. So think about this. This is from another quote from another famous Christian dead guy, D.L. Moody, and he taught it like this. He said that there are three kinds of faith in Christ. A struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. A clinging faith, like a man hanging to the side of a boat. And then there's a resting faith, like a man safely within the boat and able to reach out with a hand and to help someone else get in. Mark's gospel is taking us toward resting faith it's where we want to arrive 
as you mature as a believer, well into your elderly years, we still are looking to arrive at that resting faith. And it never happens apart from God's work in us. I mean, it's Jesus that must pull us into that boat. It's Jesus that must calm the storm. Just like we've seen in Mark's Gospel, it's Jesus that provides the bread, that drives out the demons, that grows the seed. I mean, it is all of Jesus, but the great joy and relief and the freedom is the wonderful truth that Jesus is the Messiah that he was the one that was rejected, that he was the one that suffered, that he was the one that died, that he is the risen one. And so he actually invites us to receive that and rest in that. Everything that Jesus has done invites us to resting faith. A resting faith, hoping that we would grow beyond that exclamation of verse 24. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. The only way past that is in the surrender into Jesus' hands, that as we struggle, as we cling to the side, And as we rest, and and in different seasons of our life, it's his grace and his patient care that remains. I invite us now to just reflect on some of that stuff, challenge us about our prayer life, about our faith, about where we are before God. So take a a minute, take two, before I lead us in more prayer, just to, to pray yourself and reflect on those points. Lord, so often like the disciples, we can, be, we can find ourselves thinking that, that we can save, that we can do what only you can do. Lord, correct us and forgive us. Lord, thank you that you are a saviour that can, that can do more than we can ever ask or imagine. Lord, often like the Father, we can find ourselves in our hearts exclaiming that we do believe and at the same time asking that you'd help us to overcome our unbelief. And Lord, that struggle, that tension, Lord, sustain us as we live in it. And Lord, in your grace and mercy, grow us toward resting faith in you.
Father, thank you for your continued grace. Lord, that in your Son, Lord, in our adoption into your care, Lord, you bring us to and invite us to constantly rest in you. And so, Father, we thank you that that in the cross we can celebrate that, that your saving of us is complete, that in your resurrection that it is complete, that in your giving us your spirit we have your power and your assurance and your guidance here with us in anything and everything that we face. So, Father, humble us now Grow our dependence. Lord, let us put to death our self-reliance. Lord, in all, make us more like your son. We humbly ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.